Well, good morning, Christ Community Church. Good morning. My name is C.B. Etter. I'm the senior pastor of Christ Community. I'd like you to return to your seats at this time. We're going to hear the preaching of the word from our guest speaker, Tim Shorey, in just a moment. John had just uh, recommended the uh, book, the new book that Tim has just written. And um, that book, just so you're aware of it, is $11 back at the resource table. Um, there's a couple, there's a couple other resources back at the book table as well. This is called 3030 Hindsight, 30 Reflections on a 30 Year Headache, uh, by Tim. And Tim has suffered, uh, um, for years with a headache. He's actually had, um, a headache that he has suffered from over the last 30 years without break or relief. And so, um, if you suffer from chronic pain, um, or just want to understand God's sovereignty and steadfast love and faithfulness to help sustain a man or a woman, a believer who suffers regularly. This book is an excellent resource. That book is $8 back at the resource table. And then finally, uh, Worship Worthy, A Litter of Adoration. This is a book of poems by Tim, but it will also help you just grow and fuel your passion for Jesus and your adoration for Jesus, um, and your worship of Jesus. And so this book is $5 back at the resource table as well. We want to encourage you um, to just make an investment, read these, and be blessed in your personal walk with the Lord. Uh, one thing I want to highlight about Tim and Gaylene is they are, they are such a loving couple, and I'm so thankful that, to have them as friends. Tim and Gaylene actually are going to be going through uh, the resource, um, that John just recommended or it really will help with communication. Tim's going to actually preach the message today. It's going to flow out from that book, but he's going to go through that book with Mario and Jen Vucinovic in Croatia, uh, just to help care for them as well. I'm so thankful for Tim and Gaylene and their investment into Mario and Jen. Um, and, uh, just he and his church have been a help, a supporter of our church plant to Croatia from the very beginning. And Tim, we thank you for that, just for your kindness, your church's generosity, for just helping us with our work. So can we, yeah, thank you. Thanks, church. And um, one thing I just want to highlight, and it's just that the other day, 38 years it marked for Tim being a pastor. And uh, I just was so blessed. I was just congratulating him on that uh, this morning. I was just thinking of that's a testament to the grace of God, the faithfulness of God, but also one of the qualifications uh, and one of the calls in Scripture for all of us as Christians is to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And Tim has been an example to us in steadfastness in his service to the Lord. And and it's in a, we live in a day where the average pastor makes it about three years in the ministry and then um, needs to get out of the ministry. And there's a lot of factors involved with that. But it makes me grateful to have men in my life and in John's life that we can look up to and say, hey, here's a man who's weathered storms in the ministry and has remained steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, even through things like a 30-year headache. And um, I'm just so grateful to God for Tim's example. So can we thank our brother for coming today, and can we welcome Tim Shorey to us?
Well, it is really, really good to be back. Always good to be here with you all. And yeah, today actually it marks 38 years. So 38 years ago today was our first Sunday in pastoral ministry. Uh, the uh, astonishing day by day grace of God. I remember, uh, this has nothing to do with my sermon. Don't mind it. But, uh, I remember when we received the invitation to be pastor of a little church in Seaside Heights, New Jersey, back in 1982. My parents, my dad had been a pastor for many years, and I knew what was involved in ministry. And when it, we received that invitation, I was then 23 years old, and I, I had this flash of terror. Can I be a pastor for the next 50 years? That's, that's how it came to me. The fear overwhelmed me. And, and then it was as if the Spirit of God just grabbed hold of my heart and the Lord said, I didn't call you to be a pastor for 50 years. I called you to be a pastor today and to do life today. And whether it's ministry or whether it's headache or whether it's raising children or whether it's whatever you are facing, God does not call you uh, to anything more than today. That's not a cliche. It is It is a hard core biblical truth. Do not worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough trouble of its own. We have today to serve, today to give, today to love, today to communicate. That's the focus of my book, this recent book, Respect the Image. It is a book about the calling, the commandment that God gives to us as Christian men, women, and children to communicate in ways that respect the image of God in others. So I want to invite you to open your Bible. To James chapter 3, as we read together, beginning in verse 5 down through verse 18, recognizing that I'm kind of cutting into the text uh, in midstream, but that's okay. We'll start with verse 5 and go down through verse 18. This, this is the Lord's very precious word. This is the Lord's piercing and convicting word here for us. Today, James chapter 3 and verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire, the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. 
does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth, may the Meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Lord, as we communicate about communication, we speak and think about how we are to love and live with one another. Would you please would you please come and help us? Help us to hear your truth in such a way that it convicts us and then leads us to the cross, and leads us to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. It was about 20 years ago that I sat in my Tom's River, New Jersey study and was with a couple then at that point, probably the fifth or sixth session that I had spent with them in counseling, this was a couple that their marriage was in hyper-crisis condition. It was barely, barely holding together. And I felt in that moment that they needed, along with a fresh knowledge of God and a fresh knowledge of the gospel, they needed to understand, they needed to learn, understand, and apply biblical principles of communication. When I finished, having gone through the major points that are actually the outline in the book that I've just written, the wife paused, she reflected, she had a look on her face, that clearly signaled that she was processing all that she had heard and wasn't quite sure what to think about it. And then she finally said, Tim, what you are recommending is a whole new way of life. Tim, we have never done marriage this way. We have never done relationships this way. We we have never listened. We have never paid attention. We have never made sure to understand each other. We have always just spewed whatever was in our mind out on 
each other. Tim, we have never done relationship and marriage this way. This is a whole new way of life. Can I suggest to you, my friends here today, that what the Bible has to say about communication, what the Bible has to say about our interaction with each other as fellow human beings made in the image of God is a whole new way of life for most in our culture and society today, and I would suggest might be for many who are sitting here today. It's fascinating to me as you read the book of James that this book, which in chapter 1 we find out was written to believers who were dispersed or scattered throughout the world. And this book, written to scattered believers, has a major emphasis on relationships and on the use of the tongue. There are about 108 verses in the book of James, about 50 of them relate in one way or another to issues of communication and the tongue. And it's obvious that these Christians were getting relationships and communication badly wrong. So what does that suggest? It suggests that they, scattered throughout all the world, were having trouble with communication wherever they went. It suggests to us that no matter where you go anywhere in the world, no matter where I go anywhere in the world, I'm going to take communication issues with me. Why? Because I'm the problem. Because it's something in here. It's something doing with my heart. Over the past 38 years, I, I did some calculating a while back and I figured out that I've had the privilege and responsibility of maybe doing around 15,000 hours of counseling. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that in 15,000 hours of counseling, I have discerned three primary needs that human beings have. Number one, they need to know more about God. Who is God in all of His glory, in all of His goodness, in all of His grace, in all of His love, in all of His sovereignty. Who is God? We need to know more about God, and we need to know more about the Gospel. What does it mean to be in right relationship with God through the atoning death, the perfect righteousness, the ongoing ministry and prayer of Jesus Christ, and the outpouring of His Spirit? We need more of God and more of the gospel. And then number three, we need to learn how to communicate. In 15,000 hours of counseling, I cannot count how many hours I've had to spend talking to people, talking with people about biblical communication. This is no respecter of persons in terms of need. Seasoned saints, new believers, pastors, pastoral teams, missionary teams, counselors and counselees, small group and community group leaders and community group members, parents and teens, husbands and wives, singles and marrieds, old and young, rich and poor, black and white and brown and every shade in between. We need help. We desperately need help, which is why the infallible, inerrant letter of James was written. 
and why my very fallible, <laughs> I'm sure full of errors, book, Respect the Image, was written. Somebody asked me recently what what I hope the effect of this book would be on people who read it. And, and let me suggest to you that my goal is pastorally very ambitious. I, I, in keeping with the content and the tone of James's letter, I believe that the church today, that families today, that cross-cultural and racial dialogue today, that political debate today, all need to start with profound repentance because we are not respecting the image of God in each other and lead to a whole new way of life. I believe, and the more I've considered this, the question that somebody asked, what do you want people to get out of this? The more my mind and heart have been kind of fixated on this. I I genuinely hope and pray that families and churches and pastoral teams and those engaged in cross-cultural dialogue and debate, I genuinely plead with God that He would work in us in such a way that we would create pacts, covenants, with each other to do life differently. That the truth of God's Word would grip us so deeply that we would not be content. We will not settle for relationships as they have been done. That God would grip us so that husbands and wives would get together, sit down and prayerfully say, by the help and grace of God, from this point on, we're playing by God's rules, not ours. Parents and children would do the same. Pastoral teens would do the same. One of my main premises in the book is embedded, if your Bibles are still open, is embedded in James 3, verses 8 and 9. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. What James is teaching in verse 9, when he reminds us that people are made in the likeness of God, and so they ought not to be cursed, is that when we when we recognize and rightly value the dignity of every human being who is made in the image of God, made to reflect and represent God in a unique way, when we recognize the identity of every human being as an image bearer of God and rightly value that, it will affect how we treat them. I don't know about you. I'm guessing that either in your attic or in your basement, you've got a few bins full of Christmas decorations. 
And if you are like me and us, you have some of those decorations that have no real value. You got the box of 12 at the dollar store and those Christmas ornaments are absolutely worthless to you if they fall and break. You sweep them up into oblivion and you don't even worry. But there are other ornaments that you value highly. In our home, there's this one ornament that I cherish. It is a, it is a bird made out of yellow construction paper with a red piece of yarn that you use to hang it onto the tree. Now, why do I value this Christmas ornament? It's because Gaylene, my wife of 42 years, made it when she was about six years old. And so that ornament, when I see it, when I hold it, when I put it away, gets special treatment. It gets treated differently than the dollar store ornaments do. It is cherished. You see, what we value highly, we treat carefully. Another way of saying that is this, how much we value people, how much we value people of every class, of every calling, of every color, of every culture, of every condition, how much we value people determines how well we will treat them and neighbor love that is both holy and just will treat people in keeping with their true value as measured by God. How much we value people determines how well we will treat them, and neighbor love that is holy and that is just will treat people in keeping with their true value as measured by God. Let me, let me try to answer four questions here. Today, question number one, what is the value of each person as measured by God? Question number two, how should we treat each person in keeping with their value? Question number three, what does this look like in everyday communication and life? And question number four, what do you do if you've been getting it all wrong? Question number one, what is the value of each person as measured by God? Friends, we can, we can measure the value of each human being by understanding three things. They are made in the image of God. They are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And they are destined for immortal glory. We can measure the value of each person. By remembering, they are made in the image of God. They are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And they are destined for immortal glory. That's how James argues here in this letter. First, as we've already seen in verse 9, chapter 3, he reminds us of how God sees and values all people. They are made in God's likeness. He argues from people's identity and worth as image bearers to the way we ought and ought not to treat each other. 
you should not curse another human being because in so doing, you are cursing someone who is a reflection and a representation of God. Serious. But not only that, in chapter 2 and verse 5, James argues that we should not show partiality or prejudice. Why not? Because the people that we look at, that we think are inferior to us, actually are destined for glory. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Chapter 2 and verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him. But you have dishonored the poor man. You have disrespected, demeaned. You have violated the dignity. You have treated as inferior the poor man, the very same person who is an heir of the kingdom of God. Our partiality and our prejudice against others is a reflection of the fact that we are despising people who are one day going to sit on a throne. We need to train our minds to think this way. We're in, we're in the heat of an argument, the heat of a political debate, whatever it might be. We need to stop and we need to train our thoughts and our minds to realize I am talking to somebody who reflects the being of God and is destined to sit on a throne. I had better be careful what I say. This is hard, isn't it? Because look around. Go ahead, just look around. Not very impressive. Now, when I, literally, when I was when I was writing the book and came to this section, I, I wish there had been a picture taken of me at that point. I'd just gotten done with dinner, so I was feeling all fat and frumpy and and. Just, you know, and I'm sitting in my chair, and Galen will tell you this, that the longer I sit, the more I slouch. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm typing, or I'm writing, and, and my body's just kind of slouching more and more, and, and all of a sudden I just had this sense of, anybody seeing me right now would seriously doubt the teaching that I am made in the image of God and destined for the throne. Anybody seeing me, uh, P.G. Wodehouse, an old British author, uh, used to talk about people who look like they got poured into their clothes and and had forgotten to say when. You know, uh, and uh, I, I felt like that sitting in this chair, like like I'd been poured into this chair and, and the chair had forgotten when to say when. You know, and it just... I was just there. And then it hit me. The day's coming when I'm trading in the chair. The day is coming when I will slouch no more. The day is coming when I'm going to stand up straight and tall. And the day is coming when I'm sitting on a throne. This, believe it or not, is destined for glory. This. This is an image bearer of God. You are an image bearer of God. 
You, child of God, are an heir of the kingdom of God. Your wife, your husband, your children, your pastors, your flock, all are immortals who are traveling through life with other immortals with eternal splendors. And James says that should affect everything in how we relate and communicate. Such is the value of every human being as measured by God. Made in the image of God, redeemed with the blood of Christ, and destined for an eternal throne. Question two, how should we then treat each other in keeping with their value? How shall we treat each person in keeping with his or her value? James tell us we should treat them with utmost respect and honor and love no matter who they are. James argues that we should do the opposite of curse, we should bless. We should do the opposite of dishonor, we should honor and elevate. We should do the opposite of partiality and prejudice. We should do the opposite of disrespect and anger and hatred and scorn. We should at all times, every time we look into each other's eyes, every time we engage in conversation, we should treat one another as made in the image of God. C.S. Lewis wrote about this. Words that are very familiar by now even if far too seldom practiced. He writes, The dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is Immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendor. Ponder that. And I know, brothers and sisters, there's a serious tone to this. If you've read James recently, you know it's a very serious book. James writes his letter as if he were an Old Testament prophet having a bad day. It is intense. It is serious. But beloved, it is serious business. Our relationships with one another. I remember when these truths first really penetrated my heart and my conscience. One of my first dynamic encounters with the reality that others are made in the image of God. It was about 41 years ago. We were about to our firstborn was about to come into this world. I was about to become a father. And parents will know how we tend to feel in those moments. We're going to have a baby. I'm going to have a child. We're about to hold 
our little treasure. And all of that is true. And all of that is good. So imagine, though, what happened to me when just before our firstborn was born, I was prepping for fatherhood as a 20-year-old, and I read a parenting book in which this foundational truth was mentioned. Your child is made in the image of God. And my parenting world got rocked even before it started. By God's grace, I saw the implications of that. And it it worked its way right into my conscience from that point. What that means is that this was not going to be my child so much as God's child. Not my treasure so much as His treasure. Not my legacy or my reflection or my source of joy so much as His legacy, His reflection, His source of joy. And this precious child was made to be God's and to reflect His glory and His goodness and His beauty and His love, a living, breathing image of God. And what that means is that this little bundle of cuteness who turns into a little bundle of dirty diapers and runny noses and may turn into a little romping so-called terrible too or even a resistant and rebellious teenager. That child is made in the image of God. And I must see a reflection of God in him, in her, every single time I correct or discipline or respond or talk with that child. What do parents tend to say when their kids or teenagers begin to show disrespect and sarcasm and back talk? What do we tend to ask? Who do you think you're talking to? Right? Uh, my dear friends, it's a valid question. They should think about that. But maybe we should too. When we're about to use sarcasm or name call or demean or rant or rave at our children, parents, who do you think you're talking to? That child is made in the image of God and is beheld in high honor and respect. And that meant, I knew in that moment, reading it in that book, that meant that I could not yell or curse or name call or belittle or use sarcasm or nag or whine or accuse falsely or prejudge and malign my children. Those things were off limits. Because each of those six children that we eventually have, and now 13 grandchildren, each is made in the image of God. I'll never forget a conversation I had. I tell about this in the book, a conversation with a man that I'll call Andrew. First time we had ever sat and talked and sipping coffee together. And I we chatted, I listened, we asked questions, we probed each other for understanding, showed real interest in each other. And about 90 minutes just kind of flew on by as I asked him about his life, his journeys, his family, his faith which was different than mine, his challenges and his hardships. And 
We disagreed on a number of points, but even though we did, he was a fascinating man, a dignified man. We chatted it up some more and peeled back a few layers, shared a few laughs, shared differences of perspective and perception. Some points I encouraged him and he smiled. Under points, he understood my points and he was grateful. We empathized, we appreciated. What makes all of that conversation relevant is what he said right at the end. You see, Andrew was, is a man who not long ago immigrated from sub-Saharan Africa. Andrew's a man who is a black African and I am a white American. That means he has experienced life differently in this country than I have. It means because his melanin levels are higher than mine, his advantages by and large have been lower than mine. Although his life experiences are broader than mine, his opportunities are narrower than mine. Though he has more courage than I will ever have, he has received less honor than I have. Even though he has the same yearning to be treated with dignity as I do, his experience of dignity is far different than mine. Two different worlds we have lived in while living in the same world. But Andrew and I are both made in the image of God. So at the end of the conversation, Andrew, with emotion filling his voice, put his thoughts into words, and he said, quote, Tim, where I come from, we know when we are respected. Then he took his hand, paralleled it to the floor, right around his heart, and he said, and when we are, we feel it. From here, all the way up to here. Nothing more needed to be said. In that moment, we both had a sense that two immortals had met and had coffee together. Respect the image. The scriptures teach us that since we are made in the image, and as believers have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ and are destined either for immortal glory or everlasting shame, that we are to treat each other with great respect and humility. So the third question is, what does that look like in everyday communication in life? What what does this look like across the class, culture, and color divide? What does it look like across the gender and generational lines that too often separate us? What does this look like in marriage and parenting on pastoral teams or missionary teams? What does it look like as we navigate major theological or political differences? What does this look like in community groups and with neighbors or when we rub shoulders with people who maybe are just not our type. Well, James spells it out for us in his letter. And if we were to take the time, and this is actually 
the book at this point, if we were to take the time, we would see in James and in the rest of Scripture at least 11 applications. Now, don't get scared. I'm not going to give you 11 separate points there. Uh, but I am going to run through these quick, all right, in a way that you hopefully can capture what it means to respect the image of God in others through the way we communicate and through the way that we live. If we respect the image of God in others, 11 things will happen. We will chill. We will exercise gentle self-control no matter how provoked we might feel. James writes in chapter 1, be slow to anger. And then in chapter 3, the wisdom that is from above is gentle. We will chill. We will open up making sure to say what we see in ourselves and others. James tells us in chapter 5, if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing. If you're sick, call for the elders. If you're sinful, confess it. If somebody is wandering, go find him and bring him back. This is a call to personal transparency and openness in all of our relationships. If we respect the image of others, we will make time. Realizing that we cannot engage with others unless we plan for it, which is what James had to do in order to write this letter to us. It's what you're going to have to do if you want to relate in any meaningful way with any other human being. You're going to have to make time for it. We will have to mean what we say. Committing to say things as honestly and clearly as we can, which is what James means when he says in chapter 5, let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into condemnation. We will also seek, need to seek to understand what we hear, laboring hard to ask clarifying questions until others know that we have heard them, which is what James means in chapter 1 when he says, be swift to what? Hear. Still further, we will nourish with grace, being determined to leave others After every conversation, here's a worthy goal. For every conversation you ever have, leave that person with more grace than what they had before the conversation started. Nourish with grace, which is what James means when he calls us to bless instead of curse. If we respect the image, we will initiate peace with each other. Coming to realize that the who of peacemaking is always me, whether I'm the offender or the offended. And the when is now. Let us be those who are, in the words of chapter 3, peaceable. Making peace, James says. If we respect the image, we will celebrate others. Giving honor and affirmation to all that we see. And we will study and affirm and praise the grace of God in their lives. Which is what James means when he tells us not to dishonor others or be prejudiced or partial against them. Instead, celebrate others. If we respect the image in others, we will assume that we are wrong. Humbly living with a conscious awareness of our own fallibility. And the certainty, folks, I believe this with all of my being, a certainty that we are, we are at least partly wrong 
in every conflict we ever have. Married for 42 years, Gaylene and I have never disagreed when she's been 100% wrong and I've been 100% right. Never happened. Either in my perspective or in my tone or in my timing or in my facial expression or in my, my assumption. There's always been something wrong in me. The fool is wise in his own eyes. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 1, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. Let that one sink. It means every disagreement, I need to assume I'm wrong. And I, scriptures tell us that. That's what James is getting at when he says in chapter 13, or chapter 3, that we are to be open to reason. Saying we need to assume that we don't know and there's something to learn. Respecting the image will inspire us to think the best about others, refusing to be prejudiced or suspicious of the worst in them and choosing instead to put the best possible interpretation on their words and on their deeds. In chapter 5 of James, James says, Do you remember the steadfastness of Job? Any of you read Job recently? Steadfastness is patient endurance. It communicates. Despite all of his trials, Job just steadfastly moves. You know, if you've read Job recently, there's a major part of the book that's given to his complaining and his whining. But James chooses to think the best. James chooses not to focus on the negative, but to emphasize the positive. When we respect the image of God in others, we will do all those things, and finally we will examine our own heart. We will recognize that all of our conflicts, according to James 4, are the result of sinful, selfish, idolatrous cravings in our own hearts. We have conflict. We go to war with each other because we desire things we do not have. We want things from each other. We want respect. We want love. We want affection. We want time. We want relationship. We want our way. We want things from others and we don't get them. And when we don't get them, we're willing to fight in order to get them. But if we respect the image, we'll examine our own heart. And we'll find the idols that are there. Now, if you put all of those together, something interesting happens. Chill. C. Chill. O. Open up. M. Make time. M. Mean what you say. You understand what you hear and nourish with grace. I initiate peace. C. Celebrate others. A. Assume you were wrong. T. Think the best. And E. Examine your heart. If you put them all together, you have the word communicate. Communication in a whole new way. Why? Because that person with whom you are communicating is made in the image of God has been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ and is destined for eternal glory. 
that maybe leads to the most pressing question of all. What do we do when we've been getting it all wrong? I'll give you four quick answers. Number one, we must humble ourselves. We must humble ourselves. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. James writes to these New Testament Christians who are full of the grace-centered gospel, and he tells them that the way they were communicating meant that they needed to humble themselves. They needed to repent. They needed to mourn. This is strong language, isn't it? I mean, as I'm reading it, I'm almost hesitating to read it because 21st century Christians in America don't think this way. Let's face it, we regret things we have said. We wish we hadn't said that or done that. But have we ever gone to these depths? Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Spend some time weeping over the words you have spoken. Spend some time weeping over the relationships that you have affected negatively. Weep over it. Mourn over it. We're all in the same place. James says, we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed, but no human being that is not apart from the grace of God or the wisdom that is from above, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. How many of you would like to have the full script of everything you have ever said, everything you have ever typed, everything you've ever posted on Facebook or Instagram or whatever the latest things are? How many of you would like all of that to scrolled on the screen right here? The thought is terrifying, isn't it? Who can tame the tongue? There ought to be moments and seasons in our lives where the sorrow and the grief of it overwhelms us. And when you think about what Jesus said, that we will give an account for every careless word we have spoken. Matthew chapter 12. What does that mean? That means that on that day, I'm going to have to answer for all that stuff. So God is going to say to me, Tim, did you really need to say that? And why did you feel like you needed to give that dig? And what was it that justified that racial slur? Or what was it that you felt was well served by that social media post that tore somebody down? Was it edifying? Was it helpful, Tim? Why did you feel like you had to say that? Scary, isn't it? Something to make us weep. 
makes me think of the prophet Isaiah when he has a vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6 and he sees this one who is holy, holy, holy. Glory fills the earth. What does Isaiah say? In Isaiah 6, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The great prophet mourned when he encountered the holiness of God. This is fascinating and sobering. When he encountered the holiness of God, he did not mourn his sinful deeds. He did not mourn his sinful acts. He mourned his words. We've all got a dirty mouth, don't we? The damage we've done. We need to humble ourselves. But that's not the end. We need to trust in grace. We need to believe the gospel. What does it say in chapter 4 of James in verse 6? He gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. When Isaiah cried out, Woe is me! Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips. What happened next? An angel came and took with a tong, took a coal from the altar and touched Isaiah's lips and said, Your guilt has been taken away and your sin is atoned for. And in that was a foreshadowing of the cross, the ultimate altar of God on which the perfect, spotless, blameless Son of God was sacrificed to atone for your word sin. To wash away all the guilt. To redeem you. To clean up your mouth. And His righteousness and Jesus' righteous words are now counted as yours. So that in God's sight, through the Gospel, through the grace of God is amazing. Through the grace of God and through the gospel of Christ, it's as if you've never spoken a bad thing in your whole life. Fully forgiven. Fully pardoned. And now empowered to change. Trust in the grace of God. Third, reorient your heart. Reorient your heart. In fact, Communication, conflict, and sin are due, James says, to when we have cravings in our heart that we don't receive. And in the middle of that, James says in verse 8 of chapter 4, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. What's James teaching us here? He is saying that instead of focusing on the things that you want, the cravings and affections, of this world that you want, instead of focusing on those things, draw near to God. And in drawing near to God, there will be a transformation in your life. Your affections will change. Your desires will change. And as a result, your words will change. You see, there is, as the old theologian put it, there is an expulsive or expelling power to new affection. Back in 1975, in the spring, I was a moping, sour, sad human being. This girl who I will call Sally had unceremoniously dumped 
I was rejected. I was forsaken. I was mad. I wanted her affection. And without even telling me, walked away. And I was in that mope for about three months. Until July the 3rd, 1975. When for the first time, I saw Jalen. And she smiled at me. And I was smitten. And I'm here to tell you, I have never thought about Sally since. You see, a new surpassing affection drives out the old inferior affection. And if it's old inferior affection, desires, cravings that are leading us to go to war with each other, to disrespect the image of God in each other, then we need to change our affections. We need to reorient our heart and aim our hearts at God. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. James is saying to us that we need to go hard after God and in going hard after God, we will weaken those affections, those cravings, those lusts, those desires that lead us into sin in our communication with each other. And then finally, not only must we humble ourselves and trust in grace and reorient our hearts, but we need to do what we know to be right. James 4 and verse 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James 1.22, you know this verse, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Folks, do you know one of the one of the great sorrows that I've had in thirty-eight years of ministry is how many times I've taught this kind of material and basis of God's word pleaded with people to a whole new to embrace a whole new way of life only to find out that three weeks later, four weeks later, three months later, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. And people will tell me, I've heard time and again, they'll say, oh, I forgot all about it. Folks, God gives us His Word to revive us, to restore us, to sanctify us. But we must be doers of the Word. We must obey. Now we don't obey to win God's grace. His grace is free. And His grace is free. But we must obey. And I know that's not a popular word nowadays. But we must obey God. He gives us rules and laws by which to live. He gives us His set of rules for our relationships. We need to obey. We need to do what He tells us to do. We need to humble ourselves. We need to trust in grace. We need to reorient our hearts. And then we need to surrender our wills. Just say, Lord, I am ready to obey. And here's the promise of God. 
his promises that as we obey him, trusting in his grace, trusting in his mercy, that grace will transform us. In our relationships, they'll still be hard, they'll still be challenging, but those relationships will taste new grace. They will experience new joy for his glory and and for the respect and the honor of those who are made. God give us Father, give us grace not just to hear, but to do, to obey, to be doers of the word. Not not trusting in ourselves, not in our own strength, not trying to merit or earn anything with you. Help us to know that in Christ we are already secure and already accepted and approved. But in Christ we are now to strive to be like Christ in how we respect and love each other. Lord, give us grace in Jesus' name. Thank you, Tim. Um, Care group leaders, if we can uh, just focus our discussions this week, um, one of our questions, let's revolve around where we can grow in glorifying God in our communication and our speech and our talk. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll use our care group times this week to apply this message more directly to our own lives and where we need to grow. But right now, I want us to just close by just going vertical. I want us to pray. Um, Let's just take about a minute to respond to the Lord and this message by uh, repentance, as Tim suggested in the message, and also requesting, asking the Lord to help us to glorify Him in our speech. So let's repent, and then let's request uh, to the Lord. Let's. Spend some time in prayer together. Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the truth from your word that we just heard. Lord, I pray as Tim exhorted us, I pray we wouldn't just be hearers of this word, but doers of it. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace. Your saving grace to all of us who have believed in Christ that for all the sins of our careless words, we are forgiven. Lord, we realize that you desire for us to change. And I pray that we would walk out of here different. That we would be transformed in the way we talk, in the way we communicate, the way we view other people. Help us, Lord, to respect the image of God even in the most wicked of unbelievers, to have a heart of compassion toward their lost state and that our communication would glorify you there. Help us as we communicate to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are redeemed by the blood. 
not only are they made in your image, but they're also bought with your blood. They are precious to you. And Lord, how dare us talk to any of our brothers and sisters in a way that would not honor you. Forgive us for ways in public and in private where we've thought or spoken of them in a way that has not been pleasing to you. Help us to grow and change and honor you. Help us in our marriages, in our parenting, in our relating to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ in the church to really shine forth a witness for your glorious gospel in this way. And we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can we give thanks to God for Tim again and just the blessing of... Thank you, Tim and Gaylene, uh, for joining us. And as I mentioned, folks in the back, uh, Respect the Image, the book, would be a great application follow-up. Uh, that book's $11 in the back, uh, plus tax. And then there's uh, the, the two other books by Tim as well. Please purchase them and enjoy. If you get a chance to catch Tim, uh, just greet him, say hi to him and his wife, Gaylene, if you get the chance. Have a wonderful week, church. We're so glad to see you here this morning. God bless you.